pastors here. We'd like to welcome you guys if you're new. Uh, we have been uh, kind of catch up to speed. We are in sort of the beginning stages of a, a new series we started a few weeks ago through the book of Ezra. So I want to invite you guys to turn there, if you would, the book of Ezra, chapter 3, is where we're going to be picking it up this morning. I want to give you a really fast background, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get to work on the larger uh, portion of the chapter and see where God takes us with it. So um, as you're opening to Ezra, chapter 3, uh, the quick background is this. The children of Israel, uh, the Jewish people, had lived in the land of Israel for long time. They had uh, a kingdom going for about a thousand years. And then God had progressively been communicating to them to make sure that they keep their hearts right with God and don't stray to the left, to the right. But they did. They consistently disobeyed God. They consistently silenced the voice of God through prophets and through his word coming forth. And then out of God's love, God basically acted and pulled them out of the land. And by pulling them out of the land, sent them off into a foreign land called Babylon. They were in Babylon for about 70 years. The time of 70 years has passed. It's gone. It's over. And uh, God made a promise to them prior to them going off into Babylon. He basically said something to the effect of, uh, because of your disobedience, I'm going to, uh, there's going to be a judgment in your life. Uh, and then at the end of 70 years, the judgment's going to be over. And uh, you'll be coming back into your land. That was God's promise to them. So, sure enough, just at the end of the 70 years of being in Babylon, um, and God's promise came back into full force. The children of Israel now were on their way back into the land. However, at this point, there might have been about a million, maybe as close to two million people living in Babylon at this time. Not everyone wanted to uproot their families and leave their businesses and go back into Israel a land that most of them had never even been to. So there was a very small segment, some almost 50,000 people, who had decided to make the trek um, over those about 550, almost 600 miles from Babylon into Jerusalem. And uh, they decided to go back into the city for the specific purpose of rebuilding and restoring the central worship center of the nation which was their temple in the city of Jerusalem. For 70 years, it it had lain in waste. It had been destroyed. As a result of that, you would imagine um, the morale was down. The children of Israel felt abandoned by God. They felt very far from God. Um, They had not really worshipped God the way that they were ordered to worship God for the past 70 years. They didn't celebrate feast days, festival days, uh, Passover All of these things were basically just kind of suspended. They were put on hold. They didn't engage in them for 70 years. Now we come to chapter 3 of the book of Ezra. What you're going to see now is sort of kind of a beginning uh, movement of God, kind of like a revival, where God basically begins to pick up back into the life of the people of Israel's history, begins to do a brand new work. One of the reasons why... We have kind of gone through the book of Ezra. One of the reasons why I feel this book is very pertinent for us is because, in short, God is calling the children of Israel to leave Babylon, to go into Jerusalem, and to build a church, to be a community that glorifies God, that puts God in display, that communicates to the world around how great their God is. And as doing so, God would basically be in the center of their life again, 
God would be seen, He'd be glorified, they would be full of joy because God's in His rightful place. And, in, in, and as a result of that, people on the outside, nations that were not in covenant relationship with God, they would see how good God is. And as a result of that, they would repent from their sins and turn to the living God. Okay, So the correlation is this. We love San Luis. We love this, we love this community. We love the Central Coast. I mean, we don't just simply love the fact that we have great air conditions and we've got beautiful mountains to hike and there's good surf at the beaches and people are nice and we don't have any traffic. I mean, we love that, right? Right? That, that right there would have been a perfect spot for an amen. We love that type of stuff. But at the same time, we also love the people. I mean, we love the people. We have an understanding that God loves the city. God loves the Central Coast. God loves the people in this area so much. So there's a part of us that says we want, a driving part of us that says we want this community of people to know how great our God is. So the question is how? How do we do that? What are the means? What are the ways in which God wants to engage the culture around us to communicate to them how great God is. Well, the answer is the church. God wants a strong church. God wants a community within this community. God wants a church that is really a church for the community. Not like a community church in that sense, but like a a church for the community that communicates how great God is through our lifestyles, through our love for each other, the way that we obey God, through our times of worship together, through us being a community, through us really just simply living for God and His life. What happens from that is people around us, they begin to look at the church and they think, you know what, church is different. See, what happens is our culture has come to understand church is really being about this group of people that have a lot to complain about in the culture. They complain about, you know, healthcare. They complain about, you know, uh, democratic presidents. They complain about the system. We compl- you know, and traditionally, they've got a lot of reason to think that. Because Christians have, by and large, done that and have been that. But I'll tell you, what would happen, what would happen if the church that God wants to build really happens to be a community of people that truly loves God and loves one another and are willing to even make radical sacrifices in their life to the point of even selling their goods and saying, hey, if somebody has need, I'll help you. To the point of saying, people around us, if there's uh, systems in the culture that are broken, Christians saying, listen, we will be happy to help out. The reason why we want to help out is not because we want to a reward or because we want to be noticed and we want to make it on the 6 o'clock news. But the reason why we want to help out is because God's so good. We just want you to see how good our God is. And what happens, that sends a message to the world that the church, that the people in the church really care about us. I mean, the bottom line is, I don't think the church has done that great a job at really convincing the world that we love them. I don't think we have. I think we've done a really good job at saying, come to our little building, come to our place, join our club, hate the same movies we hate, how about you hate the same music we hate, how about you hate the same lifestyles we hate, 
You know, most people just look at that and are like, I'm not interested in that. But when people see love for God, love for one another, that genuinely is expressed by the way that we live, that's a whole other thing. So Israel was on the move to rebuild this temple so that God would be seen, so that the world would be changed. We, here on the Central Coast, planting a church so that God would be seen, lives will be changed, and consequently the world will be changed. All right? Tall order. We got big hopes. Right? Even more so, we got a bigger God. I think we can take what little we have and multiply it to do great things. That's my very fast summary. I'm going to pray. We're going to get to work. Jesus, thank you that you have great grace and that, Lord, uh, you said to the church of Laodicea, uh, or to the church of Philadelphia, that even though they had very little, you had set before them an open door, and they were to walk through this open door. And even though they didn't have much, Jesus, that you would multiply, you would do great things through them. God, we pray that we would be like that, that even though we may not have a ton, we just trust you to do great things in our lives. We love you, and we trust you. We ask that your word would just speak into our hearts and transform our minds and our thinking about how you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, as of chapter 3 is where we're going to pick it up. I want to start off by basically um, saying, um, it was about 15 years ago, a little over 15 years ago, my wife, Sharon, and I kind of mentioned this a little bit last week. Um, we started, we moved up here. We moved to San Luis Obispo. We moved into a tiny little apartment right off of Pismo Street. Um, you know where that little park is at right off of Pismo Street? We lived right across the street from that, right downtown. And we basically just had a desire. We just said, you know what, God's called us here. Let's make use of what we have, which is an apartment, not very big. And uh, we just said, whatever God has given us, let's just try to make use of it. So we decided, let's start Tuesday nights, just open up our house. We'll cook food and, uh, you know, people want free food. They'll come in, they'll eat free food, and we'll have a little Bible study. And we just kind of started doing that. And as God blessed that, within, you know, six to eight months or so, we kind of outgrew our house. Uh, Lord moved us into a Seventh-day Adventist church. Uh, we started meeting on Sunday mornings as a community, as a church. Uh, teaching the Word, kind of doing the exact same things that we had, even though we didn't have food on Sunday mornings. We still had kind of midweek type stuff, and when not, people were coming out and getting fed and hearing the Word of God and changing and tra- being transformed. Uh, we outgrew the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Within a few years, we had three services there. Then God brought us into this building, and you know we've just seen God do great things here, and not just sort of numerically. That's wonderful. It's great. Um, but at the same time, seeing people's lives change and have a, a passion and a zeal to really live the gospel, to be a community that lives the gospel in a radical way. And as we've just seen God grow, what we've seen along the ways is that there has been voices that speak. And sometimes those voices that come along are voices of, you know, hey, this is awesome. We are super excited. We're happy to see what God's doing. And yet at the same time, there are also voices that sort of come from the sidelines Normally from places where you just can't even see where people are at. There's just, there's, you hear voices, but nobody's there. And those are voices of like, um, why are you doing it this way? This isn't the way it should be done. Uh, how come you don't have this? Or how come this is the, this way? Or how come, you know, on and on and on. Just reasons why or frustrations with various things. And in, in the whole scope of it all, in the midst of voices, what can happen is people can get very discouraged. They can get off track from the ministry that God maybe wants to do. And in some very real way, that's what happens in chapter 3. 
This whole mission takes place. They build the foundation of the temple that we'll read in just a second here. And by the time you get to the end of the chapter, there's a whole group of people that have been on mission with uh, Zerubbabel and this guy by the name of Joshua. And they have never been in Israel. They were not a part of the, uh, the 70 years ago. They, they're younger people, maybe within their you know, teens all the way to maybe late 60s, mid-60s. And these are people that are brand new on this whole journey. All they know is really excited about what God's doing. They're just like, this is awesome. God's moving. The temple's being built. We're moving forward. God's being glorified. We're satisfied. This is wonderful. And then there are other people that have basically been around for a long time. They were, they were a part of the group in Jerusalem. And they came to Babylon from Jerusalem. These are older people, maybe in their late 60s, uh, 70s, 80s. They're old, older people. They've, they've been around. They remember the first temple. They remember what it looked like before it was destroyed. So in their minds, they're thinking, what's happening in chapter 3 is horrible. It's like, this is horrible. This is not what the first temple looked like. This is not what, you know, God should be worthy of. You guys are building God a shack. I mean, Solomon built him a temple. We're building God a shack. You know, we're frustrated. We're bummed. And they cry, and they're upset. We'll get to that in just a moment here. So you got these voices that are competing for each other. And what I want to say before we launch into the larger passage is that when God calls people to ministry, to serve, to move, there will be times when we will be challenged. There will be times where people will come and say good things or happy. Other people will say you know, unfortunate things that are just negative. Sometimes you need to pause and listen to some of those things and really reassess what are you doing. Sometimes you got to just ignore some of those things. That's what's happening. By the time we get to chapter 4 next week, we're going to see this whole building project gets put on hold because they're very discouraged. Everything stops progressing. Everything stops entirely for the next almost 17 years it gets stopped because they're just discouraged. So with that, I want to jump in. I want to be paying attention to really how they move forward, the progress that they're sort of engaging with, and how God continues to bless them and move them. So picking up at about verse 6, I think is where we're going to start at, chapter 3, it says this, From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundations of the temple of the Lord had not been yet laid. So the very first thing they did when they got together in Jerusalem after everybody kind of pitched their tent and sort of established their little villages on the outskirts of the city, and some people kind of stayed inside the city, they decided, let's all get together and kind of do something. So the first thing they did as they got together, maybe again, some 50,000 people, give or take some, they thought that the very first thing we need to do is build a, an altar. They built an altar, they worshiped God, they offer sacrifices. Now mind you, uh, worship of God had not gone on like this for over 70 years. For over 70 years. So in some ways, this is kind of a revival. I mean, God's doing something fresh, something brand new um, in an area that has never been done like this before. All right? You know, it's funny. When I first moved up here, uh, and when Sherry and I started here, and just we were kind of praying a lot, my wife was like my biggest cheerleader, companion, friend, still is. But at the same time, I remember one of the... We talked with several different people. I remember one person, they said to me, they gave, listen, Brian... There have been at least six attempts at planning a church here like what you're trying to do. And they've all failed. 
I'm like, dude, you are a Barnabas. Thank you so much for the encouragement. You're amazing. You know, it's just like, what am I supposed to do with that? You know, just be like, okay, we're shutting the doors. We're just going home. Right? To us at the point, it's like, we don't have a home. San Luis is our home. God told us to move here. We moved here. We're trying to figure things out. But at the same time, it was just like, listen, we gotta do this. And so what was happening here is they were moving forward. They realized we got to begin by building an altar to worship God. So they do that. Everyone gathers together and they start seeing this progress happen. Um, verse seven says, so they gave money to the Masons and to the carpenters. Uh, and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and Tyrrhenians to bring large cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, port of Joppa, according to the grant that they had received from Cyrus, king of Persia. Okay, so what's happening here is immediately after the altar was built, the rest of the group of people, again, some 50,000, realized for this project to begin to move forward, for us to build the temple, uh, there's a lot of stuff that needs to happen. We've got to build the building. We've got to have the supplies to build the building. Um, we need money to build the building. There's a lot of stuff that needs to really transpire and take place. So what you're going to see here in just a few moments is that this, this large group of people, and again, relatively small compared to the number that's actually back in, in, in Babylon. So, so this, this, this small group of people, some 50,000, they all realize we've got a role. We've got a part to play. There's something for us to do. So some of them are going to be masons. You know, they're going to, you know, they're going to, they're going to form the brick. They're going to stack brick. They're going to you know, put the mortar on. They're going to do all that stuff that goes along with brickwork, masonry. Uh, there's some people that we're going to kind of cut the trees. And they're going to shape the trees. They're going to form them into nice pieces of wood and all the stuff that goes into that. There's probably designers involved in this whole thing. People that are architects. There's people, you know, that have, you know, they, they live at home and they raise crops or they... You know, they've got olive trees, and they're really good at making olive oil. And because the Sidonians and Tyrrhenians, these are people that live in Tyre and Sidon, right? They live to the north in like Syria or Lebanon in that area. And these people are basically going to provide trees. Now, obviously, they don't want money, or for whatever reason, they, they were going to barter with them. So they were going to get trees in place of olive oil and spices and other things like this. So what's happening is that there's a large group of people in Israel that were like, listen, all I got is olive oil. Like, great, olive oil, we'll take it. All I got are spices. All right, I'm going to make lots of mint. Is that cool? Yeah, we'll take mint. All right, whatever you got, we'll take it. Because the people from Tyre and Sidon, that's what they want. They want to barter. So let's trade. So my point is, is that everybody's in a part of this. Everybody's involved. And I say this because... I think it's important for us to understand as a church, somehow, I said this last week, somehow the, the framework, the mentality of the first century Christians to 21st century Christians has had this enormous leap, this radical disconnection. Let me give you an example. You know, in America today, we think of being a Christian in terms of Either A, how you're going to vote, or you know, even beyond that, you know, it's just like if, if I'm a Christian, I go to church. We think of going to church in a very passive sense. All right, we think of it in terms of um, I go to church, I, I, I listen to a guy speak, I judge the worship leader um, based upon their tightness and 
voice and how long the songs go and if it fits my genre of music, I'm cool. If not, then I'm going to criticize it or blog about it or something, you know. And, and, and we, we look at, like, you know, what type of seats do they... I mean, everything is really catered in terms of a... It's like a transaction, like a business transaction. It's like we're consumers, right? The church has got some goods to sell. And as long as we've got the right goods that are up your alley, hitting your genre... And churches grow. I'm telling you, that, that's like how American Christian works. I'm trying to say that's not how biblical Christianity works or work. Biblical Christianity is so radically different. We're, they were a community that said, listen, we, we need each other, man. The young need the old. The old need the young. All the in-between people, young married couples, got little kids. It's like, we need the young people to babysit. We need the old people for wisdom and advice. You know, we, we need each other. We are dependent upon one another. That's how first century Christianity worked. I mean, you read that in the book of Acts. It's like, these people realize we need each other. We need each other. We are dependent upon each other. And we need somebody who's going to teach us the Word. And so God blesses the church by giving pastors and teachers and evangelists and all this other type of stuff. And... You know, and it was a community of people that says we are here for each other and for the glory of God. Okay, that's the way it worked. And I'm and I'm trying to say this because I, I, I'm I'm kind of fed up with the way American Christianity works. I just am frustrated with the way it works. I really. I'm just simply frustrated. The heart of this pastor is that I, I, I don't like the way things work. I think it needs a, I think somehow it has become so just part of culture that the way we think about church is we think like consumers. What is in it for me? What is able to cater to me? And, and what, what I'm trying to say is this. Is it possible for us as a group of people to think outside of the cultural parameters and think biblically. In other words, to look at it and say, listen, we are part of a community of saints redeemed by the blood of Jesus. and We are on a mission together for a specific purpose to see Jesus exalted as King of Kings and as Lord of Lords and that Jesus is King and not Obama. I mean, in other words, we live according, you know, great, whatever you think about Obama. But my point is that, that, that we live by a different set of rules in this community with each other. Is that possible? That would have been a perfect spot for an amen too. FYI. Is it possible? I think it's possible. But you know, it's got to, it's got to take a radical way of thinking about the way we live our lives. It's, it, we've got to think differently. Here's what I mean. Here's an example of that. Uh, I hear people all the time, alright, that come to here, and maybe they're like middle-aged, a little bit older, whatever, and they're like, ah, are there older people in this church? I feel like I'm the oldest dude here. And it's possible you are, but at the same time, at the same time, I'll hear some of those younger people, they're like, 
you know, if they have to sit next to an old person, it's like, God forbid, we want like the crusade coolness factor. We're like, this guy wears a turtleneck and nobody wears turtlenecks. I mean, I want a guy that wears diesel jeans sitting next to me and that's cool, you know. And, and I think, can we think differently? Can we get outside of this culture that judges each other based upon how we dress or based upon the type of cologne we wear or don't wear or how we smell bodily or how we comb our hair or, you know, whether we go to a barber or, God forbid, if you're a male that goes to a salon. Can we change the way that we think about stuff like this? I mean, can we? Can we? I mean, honestly, guys, I love to see Jesus glorify. You know, am I honest with you? I know this isn't popular. Some people are going to be like, I hate this church already. I'll probably never come back. Fine. That's okay with me. Honestly, it really is okay with me. There's, there's so many good places in San Luis that might just fit that niche you're looking for. I want to be a community that just says, listen, we don't care who we sit next to. We don't care if they're old or if they're young or if they're just like a prune they're so old. I mean, we, we, we want to love, love one another and serve one another in such a way that is so beyond the superficial, like, Facebook mentality of like, I'll tell you what I wrote on my profile, and that's it. I'll tell you nothing more about my life. I had cornflakes for breakfast, and that's it. That's all the, a bit of my life I'll let you in on. Can we change the way that we think about this? Man, I want to be a church that just says, we're a family. We're committed to each other. We are committed to each other. And even more so, we're committed to the cause of Christ. More so, what drives us is not the fact that I want somebody watching my back, but more so, I want to live in such a way that the cross is exalted in our community, that Jesus is seen, and that people see Jesus through our lifestyles with each other. Okay? And the world has so many horrible examples of Christians living for themselves solely and trying to do everything they can to cover their tracks. And I think just the world looks at that, they see through it, and all they see is just fakeness. You don't see people like deeply in love with each other, willing to sell everything just to take care of one another's needs. That's the community I want to be. I think it's achievable. I think it's possible. I think it's only possible by people radically changing the way that they think from being consumer just being biblical. Alright, that rant is over. Let's keep going. Verse uh, 8, it goes on and says, Now in the second year of their coming, what we're going to see now is this building continues to flow. It says this, In the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheotel and Joshua, the son of Josadak, made in the beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward, to supervise the work of the Lord. And Joshua and his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons and the sons of Judah together, they supervised the workmen of the house of God and along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites and their sons and their brothers. So what you're basically seeing in this uh, paragraph is what happens is the two leaders, which is Zerubbabel and Joshua, uh, Zerubbabel is kind of more like the actual... Um, it's kind of like a mayor or, you know, senator, however you want to look at him. Kind of the main, main dude, all right? Joshua is the head priest. 
So you got the chief civil leader, you got the chief religious leader that are coming together and are saying, we've got to get this whole thing working and moving forward. So what you're going to see is these guys are going to become very full of organization. And uh, they basically appoint these Levites. And a Levite was someone that was from the tribe of Levi. Remember, there are 12 tribes of Jacob. It was uh, Abraham, the father of all the Jews, Isaac, his son, and then Jacob, uh, his, you know, Isaac's son, and Jacob had 12 kids. And uh, one of the kids, actually 13 kids, one of the kids was Levi. And uh, the kids that came out of the lineage of Levi were called the Levites. All making sense? So these guys were people that were, in, uh, were vested with the, uh, the job of taking care of the temple. Right? So you can imagine, past 70 years, these guys were all unemployed. They didn't have jobs. There's no temple. So what happens is they come back into the land... Um, and their goal is to rebuild the temple. And what takes place is Jeshua and Zerubbabel basically say, we need organization here. I mean, these, they weren't just going out and saying, everybody take a hammer and hit something that looks like a nail. You know, it's just, that's not how it worked. I mean, what, you know, you do that, it's just you got chaos, right? You got everybody trying really hard, and you got nothing but just absolute chaos. Everything gets destroyed. You end up building these houses that just look absolutely crazy. Um, what takes place then is they go into the sense of just bringing about some sense of order. Uh, they appoint certain leaders to oversee certain groups of people. Uh, you also see something very similar to this in the book of uh, Nehemiah. Nehemiah organizes groups of people to uh, work along the wall. You know, each person has some sort of a task they do. And so there is an organization um, that comes from the leadership. And, and that's something that for us as leaders that we are regularly challenged with. How do we continue to shape and form leaders so that the work can get done? So that people can actually be blessed and be used by God. Or when somebody comes and like, hey, I want to help out. I want to serve. I want to do something. Rather than saying, well, I don't really know what to do. For us to be able to say, here, go talk to this person. We'll get you dialed in. So in a sense, what you're going to see is there is a, there's a real sense of order. I want to point this out because sometimes I think it's, uh, in some circles of Christianity, it, it can become popular or kind of a notion where it's like the way to be really spiritual is to not have any organization, just kind of go by the fly, you know, fly of the, your seat of your pants. Whatever is going to happen is going to happen. You know, it's just like whatever takes place, that's it, all God, right? It's just God is not a God of leading things in an organized fashion. And, you know, to be honest with you, I think that's sometimes a reaction against over-organized religious activity. Right? You guys ever been like in a, in a group where it's like overly organized? Right? It's like for, you know, for the next 3.45 minutes, we're going to have worship. Alright? And then as soon as that's done, we're going to have a message that like lasts for 33.2 seconds. You know, it's, it's over. And then, you know, everything's like this organized, bam, bam, on a time schedule. What I'm trying to say is that organization is not bad. In fact, God is a very organized God. God does everything in decency and order. God works in order. I mean, look at the body. All right? Look at your body. Our body is a body of systems. Systems that are very functionable, that are working together, uh, sort of in symphony with each other. And what happens, you got life. I mean, I mean think about it. I mean, the, you know, some of you guys are going to go home and watch the... Football games. Who's going to win, by the way? 
Cardinals, you think so? Anybody challenge that? Nobody? You guys, like, everybody here is a Cardinal fan? Steelers, okay. I'll be really honest with you. I just don't even care about the football game. I just found out about it, all right? Yeah. Yeah. Can I get an amen? Yeah. All right. I, I just don't care. I'll take a nap. Anyways, back on track. Um, so what happens is you, you've got this organization. They're, they're establishing some sense of order, and that's what's happening. That's what's taking place. So organization is good. God gives us a body that's full of order, and uh, he calls the body of Christ to function in the same way. Ezra functions that way in the chapter 3, and the Nehemiah functions that way. There's orderliness that's happening, and it's really, a, 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 it's, it's not a lack of spiritual insight. It can be if it's not done uh, taking pause to listen to God, to just wait upon God's direction. Really the main thing is that we're to stay current with God. Stay current with God. God, what do you want us to do today? God, what do you want us to keep moving forward with today? What are things, God, you want us to stop doing and to modify? That, that's the way we've got to live. It's the way the church has to function. All right? So with that, they have this organization going on, and everybody's got a role. Everybody's kind of helping out. They realize there's needs all over the place, whether it be to swing a hammer, whether it be to give some money, whether it be to make some olive oil or you know, give your little spices. And Everybody's got a part to play. Everybody's important. Why? Because God's very important. Their goal is not to just be community. The, the goal is not to just to hang out and to do stuff. Their goal is the glory of God. It's got to be our same goal. Verse 10, it says this, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests, in their vestments, they came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, and with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. Now, jump back forward, uh, forward, or I'm sorry, backwards to verse 8. It says that this happened in the second year. So what you see is between verse 7 and verse 8 is sort of this gap of time. Maybe a year and a half, maybe two years of, of distinction. Um, so there's, there's a time shift. They move forward. And so what takes place is they start this whole project of actually building the foundation, we're told, in the second month. I think that's really significant. You know, we can read through it in our English Bibles. It might not really hit us because most of us really don't have much of a background knowledge in terms of Hebrew calendar. You know, how do the Hebrew, what does the Hebrew calendar look like? It's actually in the month of ER. It was I-Y-A-R is the actual month. It's the second month of the Hebrew calendar. Um, in another passage that I have written down here on my side note, First uh, Kings chapter 6, verse 1, there's a little passage right there that says that these things were done in the second month. And in that particular passage, it says, and this is the month of Ziv, Z-I-V, right? There's a word, perfect name to like name your kid, Ziv, Ziv. Um, Ziv is kind of an interesting word. It literally means um, splendor or brilliance or beauty. And it was a word that was given to the second month because it's springtime. What happens in spring? Flowers come out, everything's beautiful. All of that which had gone on prior during the winter is all exchanged for new life. There's, you know, the fragrant aroma of flowers in the air. Everything speaks of life in Ziv, right? And I love this because in some ways, Ezra's writing and, and he's saying, listen, in the same way there's life 
in the seasonal change. We are in ziv. Life. Brilliance. Splendor. Beauty. In the same way spiritually, God is helping us to lay the foundations of the temple. This is a new day. God's doing something here. This is amazing. It's a brand new day. God is at work. And that which was in the past, that which was dark, that which is in, 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 in behind us is, is being exchanged for something new. You guys, that is exactly what God loves to do. He loves to take that which is old, that which is broken, that which is destroyed, that which is marred and defiled, and, and bring restoration and renewal. That's the God that we serve. The significance about the temple is this. Okay? You can't miss this. Because you might be like, why are they so interested in the building of this, of this temple? I mean, isn't it true God is so big, He doesn't dwell inside buildings and so on and so forth? Yes, all that's true. But at the same time, it's important to note that this happens to be the means that God has chosen to glorify Himself. It's through this temple. You've got to understand that this is the means that God has chosen. Let me give you an example of this. The way this is viewed in the minds of the Jews was that the temple was basically the intermediary spot where God met with His people. It was the spot, it was this location, it was the spot where God says, I will meet anybody who recognizes they are in sin, who recognizes they need my help, who recognizes you know, they need assistance from the Almighty. For them to be made right with me, they can come to the temple and meet me there. It's at the temple where the sacrifices would have been made. It was at the temple where there's this perpetual you know, aroma of burnt flesh, that was a regular reminder that something had to die for their sin to be covered. There would have been the smell of um, incense, which would have been a constant reminder of uh, prayers always going on, all the time. And, and it was the way the Jews viewed it, it was literally the intersection where God met with people at the temple. Uh, this is the way Solomon prayed. All right, I'll give you an example of this. Solomon, after the first temple was built, okay, this, his temple was destroyed 70 years earlier. Uh, when Solomon prayed, he basically said something to this effect. He says, God, when people from everywhere, whatever nation they come from, whether they are a part of Israel, our tribe, or whether they are not a part of our tribe, I mean, they could be full-blown pagans living in sin far from you, not a part of our nation, not circumcised, not Jewish, if they come and they want to call upon the living God, let them come to this temple, raise their hands, and God, would you hear them? Would you hear them, Lord? God answered that prayer, because you know what happens? Is later, Jesus comes into the temple, and He sees all sorts of people selling goods and you know, putting these roadblocks between the regular people and God, saying, if you really want to meet God, here's what you got to do. You got to spend a lot of money and buy this, like, you know, nice, shiny little goat. Eh, there's no blemishes on it. It looks really nice. You know, it's very cute. And it's because we've raised this a special goat. It's like a golden goat, all right? And it's, it's perfect. And it only costs, you know, 16 small payments of 19.99. It could be yours. 
And once you buy this, you too can have fellowship with God. Right? That was like the mentality. So Jesus comes in, he's like, you guys are putting up roadblocks. I'm here to destroy roadblocks. And he throws everything over, and he says, this was supposed to be a house of prayer. This was supposed to have been a place where people, regular people, met with the living God. But instead it wasn't. It just got totally destroyed. The purposes for it were completely other than what God had originally intended for it. So what happens is God basically sends His Son, and Jesus says, I'm going to destroy this temple. It's going to be gone. In the 70 AD, it was destroyed. And the reason why I think God allowed this to happen is because Jesus is going to communicate. There's a new means by which God's going to commune with people. Not through a temple. It's through me. I will be the living temple. And those who trust in me, I will come and I, I will live in you. Not you going to some distant place. Not you praying to some temple facing east. But I will come and I will live in you. I will make my dwelling place in you. I will make my abode. My life will be imparted within you. And you will be changed. The living God will come to you. And this was all accomplished through Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus took our sin. He was our sin offering. He was the sacrifice. So when we think of Jesus, we think of sacrifice. We think of the life that He gives. And the bottom line is this. The way that all of this is heading is that God's saying, my system, my means have been reestablished. The means by which I meet with people now, not through a temple. It was like that in the old days. But the way I do that now, and I meet with people, is through Jesus. You guys, I want to try to put it to you like this. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you don't know Jesus, you have not come to Christ, you've not confessed your sins to Him, you've not allowed Him to give you the life that He chooses to give, what happens is the reason why our lives are broken and we feel the defilement of sin, we feel... Uh, heavy laden, we feel as if we've got burdens on our shoulders, we feel not right with God, it's simply because everything in our natural nature works against the specific means by which God has intended everything to function. Meaning, God created you for Himself. And if you're not living for Him, then we are perpetually fighting against the system for which God created us. Jesus comes and basically says, join me. Be made right with me. Stop fighting me. Rethink the way you think about me. If you think I'm just a teacher, change the way you think. I'm not just a teacher. I'm the living God. Rethink. That's what salvation is. It's rethinking, repenting, changing the way that we understand Jesus, trusting in Him, having our sins forgiven because of what He did for us on the cross, and joining God in this move to demonstrate how great He is by the way that we live. That's Christianity, guys. That's it. Alright? What happens is this whole move culminates, climaxes, in the building of the foundation of the temple. And the priests and the leaders of Rebbebel come out and they begin to basically sing these songs of praise 
it says this about verse 11. It says, and they sang responsibly, uh, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And uh, when it says responsibly, meaning that um, probably Yeshua, the priest, would have uh, quoted a line from a song or a psalm, and then the rest of the congregation of the people would then say another line. Um, and it was kind of like this uh, back and forth type thing where the priest would say another line and then the people would say another line. It was kind of back and forth the way they would do that. I'm going to give you an example of that in just a second here. And then it goes on and says, And all of the people shouted with a great shout and they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord had been laid. So what I want you to notice here is that uh, I just want you to catch a glimpse of the exuberance of these people. It says, uh, again, and all the people shouted, all right? Um, you can't shout quietly. You can't. All right? I mean, this, you can imagine, this was like Pentecostal of all Pentecostal church services. All right? Before Pentecostalism even came around. I mean, these people were absolutely just screaming at the top of their lungs because the foundation had been laid. They're like, God is on the move. God is back in business. God is using us to do this. And they're super excited. This is that they shouted with a great shout. And they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord had been laid. Verse 12, I love this. And it says, And many of the priests and the Levites, the heads of the father's houses, the men of old who had seen the first house, they wept with a loud voice. And when they saw the foundation of the house being laid, the many shouted aloud with joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of joyful shout from the Lord of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and they sounded, uh, was heard, or it sounded, or the sound was heard from very, very far away. So here's what's happening. Out of this huge, enormous congregation of people, a lot of them, probably the majority of them, are younger. Meaning that they had never been in Jerusalem. Never seen it with their eyes. They'd heard stories about it. Mom and dad, grandma and grandpa told them about it. They'd never seen it. They'd never witnessed it. Um, and everything to them is brand new. It's all fresh. Everything is brand new. But there's also a minority of people, I would assume, that are older, probably in their, you know, like I said, maybe late 60s, maybe 80s or so. They're older people. And they came from Jerusalem. So they lived in Jerusalem for a period of time. Maybe they were young. And now they're older. And uh, they came back from Babylon into Jerusalem. And they've been a part of this whole work as well. And here's the thing. I think a lot of them have this expectation in their mind that the work that they're going to be putting their hands to is going to be so great, so resplendent, that what's going to happen is that, you know, this temple that we're putting our hands to build right now, is probably going to be greater than the temple of Solomon's. And so what happens is, after the foundation's laid, they're looking at it, right? So you've got these two generations, older, younger, they're looking at it, and the younger people are like, yes! God is on the move. This temple is going to be incredible, even though the foundation has just been laid. God is going to do something so great. We're so privileged, so blessed to be a part of this movement. Then you got this other group of people that are like, this isn't what I signed up for. This is horrible. You know, and they're just looking at it and they're frustrated. They're like, I remember Solomon's temple. It was ginormous. Right? I mean, they're just like, it was so big and, 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 and huge and big and glorious. And, you know, and in their minds, you're thinking, there's no way this thing's going to look anything like that. I, I can remember when I was a kid, first time I went to Disneyland. Right? It was a long time ago. It was like when we first moved here. I was young, young. 
But I remember, I still remember walking in. And you know right when you walk in, there's like that huge Mickey Mouse, you know, the ears and some of that grass you know I'm talking about? Right, right when you walk in. And I remember looking at it and just thinking it was huge. Just really big Mickey Mouse. And you keep walking, you come to that castle. Is that Snow White's castle? I think it's Snow White. Cinderella? Sleeping Beauty. All right, one of them. All right, you would think I would know what that is. I got two daughters. I don't. It's God's way of protecting me. And so what happens is this huge, huge castle. I remember walking up to it and just thinking, this thing is just, keeps going. It's like in the clouds. It's so big. I just remember it's huge. And going on like uh, the Matterhorn, thinking this thing is unbelievably fast. And it was just like the first roller coaster I'd ever been on. All right? A few years ago, I'd gone back. I hadn't gone to Disneyland in a really long time. All right, I'd gone back about two years ago. I took my kids there. I remember going on big, th- you know, or going on um, the Matterhorn and just thinking, this is kind of lame. It's like not fast at all. You know, it's just it's it's not really exciting. And I remember we walked up to the castle. We were going to meet some friends at the castle, and we were waiting there. I'm just looking at, it, thinking, this, there's nothing great about this thing. It's like kind of small, actually. And, it, and I'm comparing this picture in my mind from like kind of long ago to, to, you know, two years ago. And I'm like, it doesn't match up. And I think that's what happens is we have this tendency like years ago we think it was so great, so wonderful, so perfect. Everything was just like ten times the size of what it really is. And years go by and it tends to bring this sobering reality. So these older people are looking at us and saying, this is lame. There's nothing great about this. And so they start to cry. Like whale cry. <laughs> like, like, if you ever heard like Middle Eastern people wail, all right, I'm not even going to attempt to do it. Um, just imagine it's loud, all right? And, and you got these other people that are super pumped and excited and praising God because they've, it's the first time they're part of this. And what happens is you got these rivaling voices. Zerubbabel could have been discouraged. Yeshua could have been bummed. But these guys just keep talking through. They just realize we've got to do what God's called us to do. And it may not look like much. And by the time we get to the next um, chapter next week, we'll be taking a look at some of the prophets, uh, prophecies of some of the other prophets. And one of the prophets comes along and he says, listen, don't be discouraged. Don't despise the day of small things. See, the tendency was to look at the fact that this thing's really small. I mean, we're trying to do the best that we can with what we have. And yeah, by comparison to Solomon's, this is nothing. And the tendency would have been to be really discouraged. But I love God's encouragement was, listen, you are just to do with what I've given you. Be faithful with it. Be stewards of it. I'll bring the glory. I'll take care of the rest. You just do what I'm calling you to do. There's always a danger, all right? Here's, here's what I want to encourage you guys with in this. Be careful about certain experiences that you have in certain churches or certain groups that make profound impact upon you, that that becomes sort of the benchmark for every other future work. Let me give an example. I just talked to a guy last week. He came, and he'd been a part of our church for a while, and uh, he moved away. A lot of people end up coming, and they, and they end up moving away at some point. And they moved away, and he was like, man, I haven't been able to find a church. I've been gone for a few months, and I haven't been able to find anything. It's nothing. I'm like, man, you live in a big city. There's a lot of churches there. I'm certain of that. So I haven't been able to find anything. I'm like, what? You know, what's up? And I asked him. I just felt like I needed to ask him. 
Are, are, you, are you expecting to find Calvary Slope there? Like, yeah, I am actually. <laughs> so you kind of get critical of every other work, right? And you're there, and you're like, ah, you know, the pastor's not obnoxious like my pastor at home, right? Or, or you know, you're looking at other things, and you're like, this doesn't match up, or this isn't right, or and and I says, you got to look at it independent. I mean, what God's doing in San Luis is awesome. It's great. We're happy to be a part of this. But you know what? There's other other places where God's doing great things too that don't look anything like San Luis. And the reality is, for us as a church today, we don't look like what we used to 15 years ago. When we met in my house, we're a different group. I, I pray by God's grace, I'm a different pastor. 15 years from today, our church might look radically different. And so the point that I'm trying to make is that we have this danger of settling in, of becoming people that look at other things and think, why isn't it like this? It could have been better here. Or this could be modified or tweaked a little bit here and something could change. And what happens is we end up becoming nothing but critical people never engaging the joy of celebration. Because we just don't see God at work. We just don't see God moving. That's what was happening there. One thing I love, though, about this group is they, they, all, they all just sang this, this song together. So what I want to do right now is I'm going to do something a little bit differently than we normally do. Um, I'm going to have the worship team come on up and uh, they come on up and tell you what we're going to do. Is They sang this sort of response type song, and uh, I don't think we've ever done this, but we're going to do it today because we can. And, uh, and it, it, what happens is in Ezra, it was, it was, a, it was a, a form of worship, the way that they worship God, says that they worship God, and, and sometimes songs are not always to be sung, they could be... Uh, spoken and communicated, and this is kind of what they did. So they had sort of this uh, song, and they would say something like this, the priest would say, for he is good. And then the crowd would come back by saying, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. All right? I, I think that either this is a brand new song that they made up, or this could have also been sort of an indication of a psalm that they were singing. So if you guys want, uh, there's Psalm 136. I want you to turn there real quick. Psalm 136 is actually a really cool psalm and it was meant to be sung or spoken just like what we see here in the book of Ezra. And I want to do it with you guys today because it's totally out of the ordinary. It's completely not the way that we normally do things. But it's, it's a way in which you know, believers had done things in the past. And maybe if you're from a traditional background, Jew, uh, you know, or not Jewish, but you know, say Catholic, maybe Jewish, I'm sure you do this too, but um, say Catholic or Orthodox, maybe you're used to sort of this type of stuff. You know, the priest might say something and you like say something back and... I know for me, like it was, as I was thinking through this, it, it's easy for things like this to kind of just become sort of a routine, rote. You know, you just say it. It doesn't really make any impact. It doesn't affect you. It doesn't um, change you. But so what I want to try to do is, 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 is we read through this, wants to think about how they would have done it in Ezra's time. So again, God just laid the foundations. They attribute this work all to God, even though they worked hard at it, even though it, it was their blood, sweat, tears, money, olive oil, spices. It was all them. But it was, they, they realized this is God's work who did all this. So they had a lot to be thankful for that day. And the way they demonstrated their thankfulness to God was by singing. But they sang in sort of this response-type format, which I want to try today, and we'll do it. So 
as we do this, I want us to think about what are the things in our lives that we are thankful to God for? What are the things in our lives that God has done? You know, it, it might have been your work. I mean, it might have been your homework you turned in. It might have been your job proposal you, you know, worked hard on. It might have been something that, that you had your hands on. But at the same time, you realize at the end of the day, it was God. God did it. God did it. Families to be thankful for. Jobs to be thankful for. House to be thankful for. You don't have any of those. A life, you still breathe. If you're having a hard time breathing, at least you can breathe San Luis air. So, you're blessed. Alright? You've got a lot to be thankful for. So, I want to, I want to try this. Now, traditionally, I think we, 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 we can always improve in areas. And uh, singing especially, and just kind of being excited, you know, and... Uh, what I want to try to do is I'm going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to give this a shot. So the next slide, I'm going to say the first line. So I'll, I'll always say the first line, and then you guys say the second line. So here's what we've got to do. The way we've got to do this, though, is we've got to do this, like, together, all right, in unity. That was, is, this is meant to be done in unity. It means everybody does it. I realize, uh, traditionally, um, I, I love you guys, but you, you just don't know how to keep tempo. Um, that's why when we start clapping, like always somebody's like, like way off, way off, and then, and then everybody else just stops slowly after that. It's like, it's just, it's like a nail in the coffin. It's just over. Um, so it's really important for us to try as hard as we can, with God's good favor, to, uh, to, to, to do this with a united voice. And, and, and the way, and the reason why they would do this sort of united is it was a way of saying, we are in full agreement together as a community, as a body, with these words. And we'll, we'll show that and demonstrate that by, by, by saying it forth in a unified voice. Okay, let's do that shot. We'll try it like two times through and then we'll do the whole thing. Sound good? Alright. So I'll say, give thanks to the Lord, and then I'll do it through first with you guys. And, uh, and then we'll try to keep doing that. Alright, so give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, and His steadfast love endures forever. Okay, we're going to try it again. I'm not going to say the second part this time, so I'm going to, this is all up to you, alright? Um, let's try it. Give thanks to the Lord. That was good. I mean, I don't, I, that was really good. You guys have, first of all, has had nothing on you. That was really, I'm really proud of you guys. Okay, we don't even need to practice anymore. That was awesome. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read through Psalm 136. By the time we get to about verse 10, all the way down to about verse 22, um, really, this is meant to be Israel's testimony of God's grace. So they're going to talk about coming out of Egypt. They're going to talk about being brought through the Red Sea. They're going to talk about God smiting the enemies of Israel, the Egyptians, and so on and so forth. That's Israel's story. It's really not our story. None of us came out of Egypt in that sense. We came out of something else. So we're, we're going to change it up a little bit. All right? It's not heresy, but we're going to completely say New Testament, biblical, but we're going to try to say some things that really are about our story, what God has done in us, what forgiveness that we've been granted through the cross. So you'll see how that works in just a moment here. So let's, let's try that together. All right? And uh, think through this. I want you to really think how good God has been. As we say this together, united, let's repeat it. Give thanks to the God of gods. 
Give thanks to the Lord of Lords. To Him who alone does great wonders. To Him who by understanding made the heavens. To Him who spread out the earth before the waters. To Him who made the great lights. The sun to rule over the day. The moon and the stars to rule over the night. And as I said, 10 through 22 is the story of Israel. So we're going to change it up a little bit. We'll say something like this. To Him who saw us and rescued us in our sin. To Him who sent His Son to die for us on the cross. To Him who paid our price. To Him who rose again from the dead. To Him who is coming again. To Him who gives redemption to those who believe. We'll pick it up and finish in verse 23 on to the end. It is He who remembered us in our lowest state and rescued us from our foes. He who gives good food to all flesh. Oh, give thanks to the God of heaven. Let's remember how good our God is. We'll remember how good our God is through the communion, um, partaking of the bread and the cup. If you're here and you're not a believer, you don't know Jesus, you're not in fellowship with God, I encourage you, don't partake of the communion today. But if you want to have the life that God gives you through the Son, just confess your sin to God. Confess your sin to God. We don't need to have an altar call. We don't need to have you raise your hand. But what we do need you to consider is what happens in your heart is when you call upon God. Say, God, just a sinner. I feel defiled. Sin has destroyed me and I'm sorry for my sin. The Bible says God considers us in our lowest state. As we just said. Saves us. we got music coming out. And nobody was playing. That was weird. And God comes and He saves us through Jesus. So I want you to consider what God does through the cross. Uh, you can come forward and partake of the communion. Go back and sit down or sit off to the side and just worship. I encourage you to just let your body just be a reflection of what's in your heart. Um, if you're here you don't know Jesus and you want to talk to someone, go off to the side. We'll have some leaders over there available for you to talk with. We'll worship the Lord. We'll sing some songs. Hopefully we'll sing joyfully to God. And uh, maybe even we'll carry a whole tempo of clapping through a whole song if that's possible. And if we'll give our tithes and our offerings to Jesus. If you're one of our guests, please don't feel any obligation to give. It's a way for us to give as a body to the work that God's doing here in San Luis so that God's glory can be seen in the city. People will be saved and changed and transformed. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We give you this morning. We give you our worship, our tithes, our offerings, our prayers as we partake of the communion. We do so in a way.